Hello and welcome to A Little Perspective Podcast with Will Sigmund. Today I am joined by two dear friends of mine, one who I've known for quite some time and the other who I've, I've become close with in my adult years. Welcome Daniel Corbin, nurse practitioner, and Dr. Mary Ashley Craver. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I am excited that you guys were able to join me today. We're going to be talking about some medical stuff and your your background. Today's episode is going to focus on the topic of medicine. We may or may not get, you know, a little bit deep in the weeds on a certain medical topic, but I want to start with whoever wants to go first. Tell me a little bit about your background with medicine, how you got led to be called to to have medicine as your career, and what you aspire to do in your day-to-day, and or what you will soon aspire to do if you're kind of in flux. So I had kind of always wanted to be a doctor since I was about five years old, and I was really inspired by actually a dermatologist that I had growing up. And at first I had wanted to maybe do dermatology, and then as I kind of got further into my training, realized that I would be pretty bored uh, with doing that. So I did undergrad at North Carolina State. And then um, actually after my undergrad, I didn't get into med school the first time. Um, So I took some time, stayed and did a master's of physiology there for two years. And then that next cycle, I was able to get into med school and then did my medical training at ECU at the Brady School of Medicine down in Greenville, North Carolina. And then for my residency, which I'm about to finish up in the next few months, I matched at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center here in Winston-Salem. So I'm in internal medicine, and what I'm planning to do for my career is to be a hospitalist, which if people don't know what a hospitalist is, it's basically an internal medicine or a family medicine doctor that works exclusively in the hospital, taking care of patients, admitting them, and then discharging them when they're better. So my background, I originally, well, I am a nurse, went to nursing school, also in Greenville, North Carolina. I got my first nursing degree, was an associate's degree in nursing from Pitt Community College. Later, also in Winston-Salem, I got my bachelor's degree at Winston-Salem State University. Then I went on for my master's degree at UNCW, and I obtained my master's in nursing to become a nurse practitioner. And most recently, I'm also at UNCW obtaining my Doctor of Nursing Practice degree, which I will be done with in about three weeks. So very excited about that. I currently work in family medicine, outpatient primary care. So I see a little bit of everything from newborn babies, teens, adolescents, up to adults to the end of life. So a little bit uh, of everything, which I kind of like having that variety. And I would, well, I would say, too, I see the same amount of variety, except the babies and the peds part. I do 18 to geriatrics, pretty much. Cool. Um, so, Daniel, you had a little bit of a stretch at the time that you were at the hospital before you decided to pivot to, what do you call it, private medicine? or Primary care, I guess. Primary care, yeah, okay. Do you want to talk a little bit about your time there and what kind of led you to to pivot to that? Sure. Um, so at when I first became an, an RN, registered nurse, I um, worked at Wake Med Hospital in uh, medical intermediate care. So 
basically a standard medical surgical inpatient unit um, taking care of people that, you know, maybe just had surgery or had some kind of medical problem that they needed inpatient care for. I did that for about four years, all the while wanting to be in pediatrics at some point, um, just trying to gain basic skills um, before going into a specialty like peds. Um, so I did end up applying and getting a job in a different unit at WakeMed, uh, the pediatric intensive care unit. So I worked there for another four years, critically ill children. It, it was also an inpatient unit at WakeMed. So kind of got burnt out a little bit, very sad sometimes, um, lots of happy stories, but a lot of sad stories as well. For me, it didn't seem like something that I could sustain for for life. I'm very happy in primary care. I'm very happy to be outside of the hospital. Glad I did it. I learned so much there. I would never take back the years that I had there. It was something that was needed to be uh, for me to get where I am. So primary care, nurse practitioner, I had the option of doing like a critical care nurse practitioner. But uh, after already being in critical care, for four years and inpatient care for eight years, I really wanted to step outside of the hospital setting and just take care of healthy people for a change. That's really interesting because I am the complete opposite. I am, as part of internal medicine residency training, we do kind of a third of our training is outpatient with my continuity clinic, urgent care, and some at the VA actually as well. And then most of like two thirds of bulk of our training is done in the hospital. And that is one of the reasons I went into internal medicine was as a medical student on rotations, I really thrived in the inpatient setting. I enjoyed taking care of like sicker, more acute people. And then getting to watch them get better over time was really fulfilling for me. And obviously, like you said, Daniel, you know, you do have those cases that are sad um, and, you know, some deaths and things like that. But I think we have more good than bad generally. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just find it more satisfying. I liked the acuity of it, the variety of different things that we admit to the hospital. But there is, you know, always benefit to primary care, and we definitely need more primary care providers for sure. Do you feel when you when you say that it wasn't sustainable, was it weighing on like your mental health, or is it just something that you just felt like you lost the passion for, or what? So it. No, I don't think I lost a passion for it. It definitely did take a toll on my mental health. But kind of like Ashley said, like, or we have more positive outcomes than negative outcomes. So that definitely did. It didn't play a huge role in it. I think the main thing was that I'm happier with kind of the hours and, and the way that it kind of works with my family. Being outpatient just it, it just is a better overall experience and um, mm-hmm. set up for what I have going on in my life other other than you know medicine and and working. Yeah, I will say too, that's another reason I knew I was meant to be an inpatient doctor is I would get excited to get up at you know five five thirty in the morning, start rounding by six and really like want to know what was going on overnight with my patients is that because that's just what I was passionate about versus I could sleep later and go to clinic at 8:30 and I dread going to clinic that's how you know what you're passionate about is what what you're willing to spend your time doing absolutely and see I prefer to leave my patients at home I mean <laughs> at their own homes and when I come home I don't think about it 
<laughs> obviously, unless I'm on call. So yeah, the work-life balance, if you are into that and love that, then absolutely inpatient, like you said, is probably for you. But I kind of like to separate the two worlds. <laughs> so, well, and I, I do too. And I think mm -hmm. that's where we're similar. And that's the nice thing about being a hospitalist is that you don't have call and you can go home at the mm. end of your 12 hour shift and have, you know, handed over your patients to a nocturnist or to a PA or nurse practitioner, whoever's cross covering that night. And you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, um, yeah. How often do you take call in your practice? In my practice, I take call about once a month and it's for a week, but Okay. But call for me, it's not like probably it's very dissimilar than what it would be like in the hospital setting, I'm sure. So we basically take after hours calls. So if a patient calls and we're closed, it'll go to my cell phone and I have to answer that phone call if it's 3 a.m. It doesn't matter. And typically what that looks like is I, I'll either you know, call in a prescription for a patient. I'll tell them to call back in the morning to make a same day appointment or I'll advise them to go to the emergency room. Um, I never have to go in to see the patient. Um, it's just basically taking a phone call. Right. And I would, I guess, to you've kind of defined your experience of call. Um, our call inpatient, at least as a resident, you're in the hospital, usually on a 24-hour shift, admitting patients from the ER or transfers from other hospitals kind of all night long, and then taking care of patients on the floor. Like if a rapid response comes mm. up, someone's getting sicker, they have to go to the ICU, you have to deal with that. Um so it's, it's very different, obviously, as a resident and more on the inpatient side. But um, yeah, call for a week straight. I'm sure it can get tiring because I'm sh how many calls do you think you average like every night? I'm oh, sure at least one or two. Actually, it's hardly any. Uh, I can I can go an entire week on call without a single call. And I think part of it is because we're like this. If this is not a true emergency, like <laughs> you're probably going to get charged a fee. So we try to minimize, you know, if somebody's like, I have a cough, I mean, it, sometimes they try to call and then they're like, oh, wait, this isn't really emergency once they hear that. And they're like, okay, I'll just right. call back tomorrow morning. So it does minimize it. And because we are primary care, the patients aren't as sick as what you would see. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure. So I have, uh, that reminds me of a question uh, that I think will be a good one. And I think both of you guys will have different answers since you're kind of both in different blankets of, of medicine and with, where you have the hospital versus primary care. How has the pandemic affected your work? I'm trying to think. In the beginning, I guess I felt like a little bit of a guinea pig because I was the first resident exposed to COVID in my program. And it was back when the test had to be sent out to Charlotte and it was a seven day turnaround time. We didn't have rapid tests. We didn't have tests that came back in two hours. And so that back then I had to quarantine in my apartment for 14 days, didn't go to work. And I had a lot of anxiety at the beginning because we don't know all that we know now about COVID. I mean, the amount that we've learned in the last year and the ability that we've had to get a vaccine in the, such a short amount of time has just been amazing. And in terms of like my work at the hospital, I would say, I guess the rotation that I was affected on the most was probably in the ICU last month. And I went from having a census at the beginning of February that was half COVID patients. And they were the critically ill ones, you know, on a ventilator for weeks at a time. And most of them at that point ended up passing away, unfortunately. 
And then I got to see as our numbers came down by the end of February, I had one COVID patient when I left that service. So that was kind of cool to like see it in real time of what was going on like around us. When do you think that that uh, time period kind of started for you? Um, you know, we're in North, all of us are in North Carolina, and I know it affected different states at different points. And I know when you think about the U.S. as a whole, we, we generally kind of consider early to mid-March is, you know, kind of the market where it kind of really started. Where was that point for you and your hospital? The uptick was probably end of April into May, but it didn't get really bad. And we started having to do surge plans until December. And really the Thanksgiving, everybody going to see relatives, we mm-hmm. saw just a, a huge uptrend. We were maxed out on capacity for ICU beds, for floor beds, people boarding down in the ED. It was really bad Um, and kind of carried over into January with the Christmas surge. And then once everybody had kind of gotten COVID or was starting to get vaccinated, I think that's when we started seeing the downtrend in February. It's amazing to me hearing that as a a normie, if you will, um, (laughs) that it was that late in the year, considering where you said it kind of uptick, that you really experienced critical mass. I, I mean, wow, that is a long time. I will say it's not that when we had COVID patients the whole year, it's not like we had zero. We had a constant flux of them, but we didn't run into staffing and other issues until then. And a lot of that is because, you know, our state was, I think, on the more liberal side of being locked down for longer in terms of restrictions Mm -hmm. compared to places like Texas and Florida. And the other thing I think that made a difference is we're blessed to be in a state with lots of hospital capacity. So we had a lot of ability to use beds in other places and transfer patients that a lot of these smaller areas and smaller hospitals don't have the ability to do. Daniel, how about you? Yes. So I feel like our kind of increase in numbers happened uh, last year as well. So probably like she said, like Ashley said around um, Thanksgiving, uh, right after Thanksgiving, and then the numbers started to climb. I don't have any stats or anything, but just based off my memory and experience, I feel like we started having like every COVID test was positive um, for there for a while. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, people had to meet very strict criteria in order to be tested. Now it's like you just test anybody; they can. They don't have to have a symptom. They don't have to have an exposure. If they want to be tested, they'll get tested. And there's so many free testing sites also all around. You can just drive up, swab your nose, go on your day. And in eight to 12 hours, you have a result or less yeah. in some certain uh, certain circumstances, depending on if it's a rapid or a PCR test. But but yeah, I'll agree. I think that it has it, it did start to slow down. Our numbers uh, or positive cases did start to slow down uh, at the beginning of the year. Now I am starting to see a slight incline. Uh, maybe it's just a little, uh, maybe it's just a coincidence that I've noticed more uh, positive tests, tests recently. But, you know, things are looking positive for the near future uh, that we'll have uh, with more people getting the vaccine, the vaccine being available to more individuals uh, that we should hopefully in the next several months start to see some type of normalcy in our everyday lives again. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, the tests were so scarce, like our hospital in the beginning, once we got the ability to get, I think the Roche test is what we had, 
you had to batch them. So you could only run 20 tests at a time. So you have a patient considered like person under investigation, which you just treat as a COVID patient that you would before you had a test result back. And you would have to wait sometimes 10, 12 hours before they even run the test because you did have such select criteria. And now it's like you said, Daniel, anybody that has any type of symptom, you got to COVID test them because Mm -hmm. COVID can do almost anything. And we really try to reserve, you know, our COVID beds for the people that are positive because what we were doing before, because they didn't want them to board down in the emergency room, they would send these people under investigation with pending test results to a COVID unit. And then we were transferring people out of units when they were negative. So it was just a shuffle of patients constantly. And I never thought that that was really good for patient safety or patient care, but you have Mm -hmm. to keep the hospital flowing, you know. Daniel, you mentioned how it affected numbers-wise. How did your day-to-day get affected? So absolutely. Before the pandemic, I had never done a single telehealth call with a patient. And then all of a sudden, it was like 90% or more of my patients were on telehealth. And then whenever you start anything new, there was no time to prepare for this. There was no time for troubleshooting. So my days were so long with technology problems. Like I couldn't get connected to the patient. They couldn't see me. I couldn't, or I couldn't see them or they couldn't hear me or they sounded like a robot or most of the time I sounded like a robot and they were like, okay, this isn't working. So then I would mute my mic call them on the phone, be able to see them and then hear them through a different device. So we had to make all these different types of uh, like works, you know, workarounds to get it done. And in some cases, I just got fed up with it. And I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to call them on the phone. (laughs) I could I never even got to lay eyes on the patient. It was more or less a phone call. But luckily, insurance insurances have been pretty decent about allowing us to make those different accommodations for patients, even allowing us to do complete physical exams, like an annual physical completely over telehealth. It was very weird at first. Yeah, we did some telehealth as well, especially in the beginning. Um, And I, we always try to connect by video, but I was like you, I didn't have a whole lot of luck with it. So I ended up just talking to people, you know, on the phone, um, which was okay for most things, but our particular patient population, they were ready to come back to clinic by late summer, early fall. And so we kind of went all back to clinic then and stopped doing a lot of telehealth. I would imagine that to be the case for a hospital because in my mind, you would be dealing with more serious things. Oh, well, let me clarify. I was not doing telehealth for my inpatient patients. We were always fully staffed. This was for when I was on those clinic months and had my own kind of clinic population. And a lot of, I should preface to you, in a resident clinic, you have a lot of underinsured or less self-pay patients that really just don't have a lot of access to technology. So that way, I think in that regard, it was harder for us to, to do well at telehealth. But as a resident, I thought it was a good experience to at least learn how to do it. And I think we've had a lot of great things that have come out of the pandemic and telehealth is probably one of those. What does a telehealth appointment look like? Uh, are you talking about only clinic or there was also some type of telehealth in the hospital as well? It was only in clinic. For okay. inpatient, okay, we gotcha. were fully in person. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. I, I know I've seen cool. like the EICU type thing where they have the cameras in oh, the rooms yeah. and I didn't know if it was something like that. ICU. No, we've got full, full intensivists. And um, I think you know, the nurse is really good about getting patients iPads to talk to their family members. And honestly, you know, 
you see on the news people saying goodbye to their loved ones that are dying on iPads, that's real. Like that really mm. does happen because their family has to face like, if are we going to come in and get exposed to COVID and be with our loved one? Because our visitation policies have been pretty locked down, honestly, or are they just going to use technology on an iPad? So um, tough, tough decision for all those families. I think one thing that I've been fascinated with throughout this, the pandemic, and I think one positive thing as a tech nerd, you know, I already kind of knew how to use video conferencing software and stuff, but it's a two-way street most of the time. And so to, to have this knowledge be dispersed to the part of the population that either wasn't made to use it before or didn't want to use it or whatever be the case, it kind of puts everybody now in a little bit more even playing field and in turn allows for things that you wouldn't have thought could be done virtually to be done virtually. And even doing podcasts like like we're doing now and we're all virtual, I have a buddy of mine who does a similar kind of setup here where he has like two, three people on his shows. They usually go to his house and I think like beforehand they kind of preferred that or whatever but just the concept of hey can you guys come on the show like you probably didn't think twice about it being virtual versus in person right but also too like even for me like at my job my team now i i, I switched teams a couple months ago and a lot of my team is remote or not remote or they're not they wouldn't come in to our HQ here in Raleigh, if they were, if it was normal, you know, before COVID, because they live in either Chicago or, you know, California or Arkansas, like we are all over the place. But, you know, in the, we have like a, a, a morning stand up. When we're all on that, it just feels like we're all together. And it's just really interesting. I think it's one of the bit, one of the main positive things that have come out. And now with that being said, do you see, technological changes mostly for the better i would say being uh, some of them being permanent as we get back to quote normal for either the hospital and or primary care i definitely do yeah, i definitely for do sure. um one of my hobbies kind of outside of medicine is needle pointing so it's basically in a nutshell a canvas and then you take threads and stitch over it and then it gets made into like a pillow keychain framed things for your wall you know various things and i found a group on Facebook called Stitcher's Safe Place. And they meet every Wednesday night, women all over the country, and sometimes a few men. And we Zoom while we work on our projects. And we're actually going to a retreat this summer that has been formed out of this group. And we would have never met each other had it not been for COVID. And I just, it was just really, really cool. And it's a it's a neat little community that, that we have. That is cool. And yeah. you foresee yourself doing more telehealth appointments, Daniel? Oh, yeah. It's, it's so convenient for the patients. They don't have to leave their house. As funny as it sounds, I've been on telehealth phone calls with patients and they've been driving. And I'm like, do you want to pull over? <laughs> or they'll, they'll be in Walmart shopping and then they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah how much is this? And it's like, come on. <laughs> I had one and the guy was in the grocery store doing yeah. his shopping. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really is. A, it is so, a time saver. Like sometimes yeah. it, when you when now that we have this. I guess, underlying understanding of the assumption that everybody can and will do virtual as opposed to before where we didn't always know if they could or would. It changes what I think people agree to and what 
yeah. the amount of things that we can get done in the day. Like for me, working from home now, pretty much for the last year, I save myself like an hour plus of commute. And now it makes me like sick to think yeah. about the fact that I spent that long for so many days, <laughs> yeah. you know, to do, to do what I could do at home time. because I'm, I'm fortunate enough right. to have, you know, a setup where, where mm-hmm. I'm able to do that. And not everybody is. And I understand that there's a lot of things that just like, even, even this, as an example, you knew it wasn't going to take up, but a, a specific slice of your day. It wasn't like, Absolutely, Hey, we got to yeah. go drive somewhere and meet and then set up and blah, 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 blah. Like everybody can just do it and then get on about their day. So I think that's a really yeah. good thing. Yeah. I definitely think that the telehealth opportunity or availability of telehealth is a 100% positive thing. Even, I mean, the majority of diagnoses can be made, at least in primary care, by a review of systems or by going over like symptoms. There are very few, t- I mean, there are some times where I'll be like, okay, have the patient drive up here. I'll go out to their car and listen to their lungs or, or their heart or whatever, abdominal exam or something. But for the most part, you can make a, di- a pretty accurate diagnosis just based off their symptoms. I completely agree. And actually, I was just listening to Daniel. Have you ever listened to the Curbsiders podcast? No, I haven't. Okay. It's one for internal medicine specifically. And they just had a MedPeds hospitalist on that was talking about kind of our decreasing clinical value of the physical exam. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess the one thing I would say, I agree with you about, you can usually make your diagnosis off a of history, but there's still so much value to like putting your hands on patients. And I think the patients really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I, I think my, I guess, most bang for my buck on exam is kind of your general of like, we walk in, you know, if this patient's sick or not sick, yeah. and you can't usually get that over telehealth, mm-hmm. um, unless you're doing a video call. But. but it certainly has saved time for things for simple things like a diabetes follow up or hypertension yeah. follow up. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, you're going over labs with them, you know, and any symptoms that they right. have. Refill but meds. yeah, exactly. So there's definitely a time and place. And I think that we will still utilize telehealth moving forward, even after the pandemic is under control for things like that, which I think is great. I think another thing that it can be used a lot more for is uh, mental health. Um, I had, Mm. this is actually going back into some of the unseen, I guess, tragedies of the pandemic. I diagnosed more anxiety and depression this past year than I had seen the first two years of residency and started more antidepressants but they're perfect telehealth follow-up visits because you just mm-hmm. need to talk to the patient about how they're doing and you know it's medication management and it gives them an outlet and somebody to talk to. So I think that that was, I think telehealth was already being used by psychiatry more than other specialties. And I think that that's moving more into, into other realms now too. I completely agree. Yeah. Like getting mental health therapy is something literally you're just talking to somebody, right? So there's zero reason why you can't just do that virtually. And the doctor can see more patients, probably. They can, you know, diagnose the same way. But but even if you were to maybe have a diagnosis like that in person, Mary Ashley, and then they go and you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend this person, this person, or this person. They all do, you know, telehealth visits. I think for me, like, I, I, I came across, like, an a list of therapists that are solely doing, I mean, pretty much all therapists at this point are doing like virtual, but 
Um, I think my mind went to like apps and things like that before. And those can be super expensive, like super expensive versus now you have your average normal therapist that you would see in person doing the same thing, but for a reasonable cost covered by your insurance as opposed to like literally quadruple right. the cost mm-hmm. uh, for the same visit. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think there's less stigma surrounding a telehealth visit with a mental health provider versus actually going to like a therapist or a psychiatrist's office. And I hate to say that there is a stigma, but there still is. And, you know, as much as we're trying to decrease that, I think patients would certainly be like, oh gosh, I don't want people to see me like around if I was going to a psychiatry doctor. So, um, yeah. And if, if that's something that you want to do, you know, there's things like that where you have appointments or things that you might want to do during the day, or like you don't want it to eat into your family time at night or whatever be the case or your free time, quote unquote, you can, you can just use your lunch break or something like that to, to do those kind of things and still continue to be just as efficient as opposed to if you had to drive somewhere, get settled or wait or whatever, and then drive back. You know, that's probably going to take you twice as long. So a two hour appointment really for, for a one hour appointment. And so I know that was one of the things that really enjoyed moving from job where I didn't really have a lot of things around the building to downtown. And then I could do things like get a haircut or go see my optometrist, either like at the very end of my work day or, you know, on my lunch break or something like that. And it's the same kind of concept now, but virtual for things that you can do. Wish you could get a virtual haircut. That would be fun. (laughs) So where do you see yourself uh, continuing on with, with medicine? I know that, you know, Daniel, you're about to finish up your doctorate. Yes. Part of, and this is kind of going back to our first conversation about why we chose the area of medicine that we are in, but I have started to be more interested in functional medicine as well, you know, using lifestyle as medicine to prevent problems. And I have a huge passion for prevention and the excitement of seeing a sick patient and seeing them get better is thrilling but also to me and this this probably sounds boring to a lot of people but to me it's also thrilling to see a patient actually take their healthcare in their own hands and mm-hmm. and make those lifestyle changes you know eat better and actually make the time to exercise and do the things that they need to do limit their exposures to alcohol smoking all these little pollutants and environmental factors that in the long term really do put a toll on your healthcare and can cause problems later on. So seeing somebody actually take those things into consideration and prevent illness is also kind of exciting for me. So I am, yeah. I am working on a certification now for a certified functional medicine practitioner. Um, that's kind of aside from my uh, doctoral studies So we'll see where that takes me. I'm very excited to learn all these things that I didn't learn in NP school. I mean, we learned the basics, but this is really going into into depth about it. I also think it's becoming more Um, popular as a a culture. Sure. The concept of it is really like, let's do things so you don't get sick in the first place, as opposed to 
trying to react to everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I can see myself kind of going down that road in the future. I definitely love uh, family medicine, and I like seeing I like seeing uh, illnesses and managing those. But how exciting would it be to be able to prevent those from happening to begin with? Right. You know, the, unfortunately, though, the thing with functional medicine is it isn't mainstream, and so insurance doesn't really cover it. So unless right. you have, if you, unless you're willing to put forth that money to, to privately pay it it's unattainable for most people that that seems to be a little ironic that uh because the insurance companies <laughs> could really save a lot of money by putting money into that ultimately. yeah now daniel just as an aside when you get your dnp are you gonna teach nursing or do you want to is it would your clinical practice change in any way or no, my clinical practice won't change. The purpose for me getting the DNP literally is because in later on down the road, I could see myself teaching. Okay. Definitely, yeah, I don't want to teach now. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. teaching stu- uh, MP students or PA students or whatever, that's fine, like in the clinical setting. But I could right. definitely see myself uh, teaching at a university way in the future. So I was like, gotcha. I'm already in the academic mindset let me just get it out of the way let me get it done now (laughs) yes so i won't have to worry about it yeah and you will literally be uh dr corbin after that yes so i will be dr corbin but i will not be a medical doctor that is i was going to clarify that because i didn't know that you could do that because it's not it's not uh I'm, i'm sure a lot of people don't realize that it's not like a psychiatry degree but it's not a medical doctor degree but it is medicine and it's interesting and, and neat i think to kind of have like an in-between where you're still you're still yeah. a doctor and you're in medicine but you're not an md quote-unquote right well it's very similar um a lot of medical professions have doctoral degrees now um pharmacists uh farm d they are doctor whatever but they're not a medical yeah. doctor and it's an, it's very important if you do introduce yourself as doctor whatever that you clarify, I am a pharmacist or I am a psychologist, not a medical doctor. So yeah, psychologists, they have a doctoral degree, even uh, physical therapists and occupational therapists. Mm -hmm. And um, even if you think about podiatry, like that is a separate degree in medicine. In many cases, there are obviously podiatrists that are MDs, but you know, optometrists, yeah, podiatry does a residency. I always thought of it mm-hmm. as like med school for the yeah. ankle, basically. Sure. You know? Yeah, yeah. And similar to optometry, too. It's like a, right. a residency right. for the eyes. Yeah. And hey, Mary Ashley. So, yeah, there's. You're, you're about to make a transition yourself. So, both of you guys are about to kind of um, have these big changes. Yeah. Um, can you describe a little bit about that and what your intention is for the next foreseeable future? As I mentioned, I'm going to be a hospitalist um, at one of the local places uh, in Raleigh. So I'm getting to move back to my hometown, which I'm very excited about. But I think a, a big change in my career is coming. You know, I'm going from a resident that's had always some supervision over me to an attending and like I'm going to be completely independent. And that's a big transition your first year of just being on your own. Um, but I think it's good to have, we have a ton of specialists in Raleigh that you can always call consults, you know, use your colleagues. And there's, I think that's one thing I've learned in medicine is there's never, there's never no help. Like you can always reach out for help to somebody, even that's looking something up on your own or asking a friend. I've learned from my nursing staff a ton, you know, asking your nurses. So it'll be a a good transition year, but it's definitely going to be a transition. I I can imagine 
uh, empathizing with your feeling of like, whoa, like I can technically do whatever. And so, yeah, you know what I mean? I, obviously, you're not going to do whatever, but, you know, you're going to do right, based right. on what you've learned. But, <laughs> you know, it's like riding your bike without training wheels. Exactly. And I, I think the I think here at Wake Forest, you know, we do a good job of giving residents autonomy, like our second and third year residents supervise interns, and then we're supervised by either our fellow or attending, but we still have a lot of the day that we are by ourselves making decisions on our own. And I think that's really good because otherwise you're never going to learn. And so learning in a supportive training environment, I think is always really important. Um, but at the same time, you always know there's an attendings name on this chart, at least from a, a legal perspective. And next year, that is my name. Mm. So I think I will definitely be double checking more, second guessing yeah. myself a little bit more. <laughs> when- I have a couple other questions floating around in my head. One, I'm going to be careful asking, and I don't want to get political about this, or it shouldn't even be political, but you know what I'm trying to say. As far as we get, quote-unquote, back to normal, I think it would be a good for you guys to kind of give your opinions on how we can get there most efficiently, effectively. Your opinions on, you know, vaccination for COVID, as well as mask wearing, things you maybe should or shouldn't do, even after you get vaccinated, if you choose to get vaccinated. Can you share a little bit about maybe what you tell your patients or what your opinions are? Within, like I said, we're- I have a fairly quick answer. My answer of how we're getting back to normal is everybody get vaccinated. I can share a, my, my personal experience. I got the Pfizer vaccine. I had some, in the scheme of things, very mild side effects after my second dose, fever, chills, muscle aches for about 12 hours after, and then I was done and it was back to normal and I was fine. I'd say the only caveat to everybody should get the vaccine. If you are pregnant, you should talk to your OB because I don't do that side of medicine. But other than that, I think all three are very safe and effective and I would do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah. I mean, if you tell everyone to get the vaccine, probably 70% will. And how many do we need for herd immunity? It's like uh, 60 or 70. Okay. Yeah. 70. I don't know. So I agree with Mary Ashley. We need to do, we do need to encourage people to get the vaccine because uh, the more people you tell, the more people that will. And it is very safe. I mean, there is this, uh, you know, there's this group of people that, that are very hesitant about it because of the, you know, it's the mRNA vaccine. But if you do look at the science behind it, it is very safe and it is very effective. I also got the Pfizer vaccine. My arm was sore for a few hours after the first dose, and my arm was sore for a few hours after the second dose. I never had fever chills. I never had, you know, malaise, fatigue, or anything else. But I did hear a good uh, amount of people did have similar symptoms that you were explaining there, Ashley, about the, you know, just kind of feeling bad for a few hours, and then you're fine. I mean, in the scheme of things, like you said, it's very mild and definitely worth going through that uh, to prevent something even more serious, not even for yourself, but also the people that can't get vaccinated, like the children can't get vaccinated, at least not yet. And really, other than pregnant women, like you said, I can't think of anyone else besides kids that, that yeah, can't get vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, vaccinated. honestly, I think there's no 
contraindications. Mm-hmm. And I guess unless you have the anaphylaxis to vaccines, that's the one kind of soft mm-hmm. contraindication to it. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, you know, that's why they monitor everybody after. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard of a couple people having some more severe reactions, but they ended up ultimately being okay and never had to be hospitalized or anything like that. So very sure. safe. And I think in terms of mask wearing, we're not going to probably come down on that until we are at that critical period of like 70 Mm -hmm. to 80% of people that have been vaccinated. So it's probably going to be, I would think well into the fall or even Christmas, maybe. Mm -hmm. I could definitely foresee a whole cultural shift with mask wearing and people are still going to be wearing masks five years from now, you know? yeah. Um, Yeah. It's a huge cultural shift. And also, another positive about the mask wearing and everybody being hyper vigilant about washing their hands is I have seen dramatic decrease in flu this year. I saw flu Yeah, I think I've seen two, and they were both flu B, uh, which is usually not as common as influenza A. So I've seen two, and normally I would see. 2050 wow. by now, you know, craziness. And that, that would be the majority of our patients in the hospital is just peak flu season. And I was mm-hmm. worried about flu and COVID coming together, but yeah. it just ended up being all COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Flu. Yeah. And I don't know, it, it also could be theoretically, it could be that we aren't testing for flu as much, at least in primary care. Well, I well, I was gonna say our PCR test, they actually coupled it with flu A and flu mm. B. So everybody was getting tested yeah. for all three. So I can verify most of them did not have flu. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So and also insurance companies are, re- at least in primary care, they're requiring the patient to have a fever in order to test for flu. We also have the combined flu test with the COVID test. Mm. But if yeah. they aren't having a fever, we only do the COVID test, unless the patient specifically requests the flu test. I would prefer to test for the flu because everybody knows you can have the flu without a fever, but insurance company is adamant that they will not pay for it um, unless you do have have, a fever. We have treatment for flu. Like if you, you know, within 48 hours, Mm -hmm. you can get Tamiflu, which I think there's some drugs coming down the pipeline like Tamiflu for COVID in the outpatient setting. Mm -hmm. Since I'm mostly an inpatient doctor, you know, we were used to using dexamethasone and remdesivir, mm-hmm. and then Wake Forest had a few clinical trials going on of other investigational drugs. But it'd be interesting to know, Daniel, did y'all have that monoclonal antibody? It starts with BAM, I can't pronounce it, but for outpatient COVID. I, I also got the Pfizer vaccine, and my experience uh, was very similar to you, Daniel. My arm was uh, sore a little bit for the first one for like maybe three days, getting decrease, decreasing every day. And then the second one, my arm was sore for like a day and I didn't have any reaction to it, uh, fortunately. But I also heard a lot of people that did have reactions. So it seems like I, I mm-hmm. think I read it was more likely to affect females, uh, adult, uh, not adult, hmm. young females as opposed to any other mm-hmm. For a reaction, but um, Mo- so most of my residency colleagues all had the bad reaction of the myalgias, fever, chills, that kind of thing, and we noticed just anecdotally that people who had had COVID, which were very few of us, thank goodness, got that same reaction to the first dose. So it's like whenever your immune system has seen it a second time, whenever if that's vaccine versus natural illness, you do have a more robust response, which is was interesting mm-hmm. to us. What would you say to people who are skeptical about the vaccine? I know your opinion is you should get it, but I think 
validly there's a there's a lot of people who who are skeptical because for one reason or another what about the mrna factor and as really i've heard that this type of vaccine because of the 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 things that we've learned about it and the type of vaccine that it is being mrna that it could potentially pave the way for cancer treatments and things like that but what would you specifically say to those kind of people i i think it's important to validate uh your patient's concerns and skeptic skepticism about uh things like vaccines it's very common for medical professionals to dismiss people's concerns about vaccines because of the way we've been you know, educated about it. But it's important to, to validate that there is a concern for that patient. Not that there's a concern, but that there is a concern to that patient. And just show them the facts and allow them to make that decision for themselves. Yeah, I think, you know, if you're skeptical, talk to your doctor. That's a perfect telehealth mm-hmm. about Absolutely. talking about your vaccines and, and really just your whole healthcare maintenance and things that you might be needing to do in that regard. So yeah, talk to your doctor. You know, I won't get into it here, but we can walk through in a way that you can understand about what is mRNA, how does the vaccine work? And again, like Daniel said, asking what concerns do you have, like specifically that I can answer? Mm-hmm. I've sat down with plenty of patients and even just told them my experience with it. And the fact that I said, you know, I would do it again, even though I had this side effect that's very common. And I think that that really validates and helps a lot of people make that decision. And I, I think uh, there's a lot of good resources online. There's a lot of, let's be clear, there's a lot of stuff online, period. But if you go to, like, <laughs> reputable YouTube channels, that you know, verified YouTube channels or whatever, there are definitely some mm-hmm. some good resources there. I think Vox did a really good, here's how mRNA vaccines work type of thing with, with graphics and all that. But I, I certainly did my research about it beforehand too, not necessarily to teach myself, but to be able to ex- help explain it to other people that might have questions or whatever, which I do for a lot of different things. Normally it's technology, but in this case, medical. So cool. Thank you for, for that. And the other question I had, what is one of the most, uh, their memorable, I'll say memorable. What, what is a case to you, you don't have to identify the person or whatever. But what's what's a memorable case to you that sticks out, and why does it stick out? I have one one in particular when I worked in the pediatric ICU. It was this little girl. She was like seven at the time. She was there for flu. She had the flu. She was very sick. I was pretty new in the PICU, so I would say within the first year that I was there, she had flu. She was intubated, very ill, almost died, and we recovered her completely. And I just remember after she got extubated, you know, she got or taken off the breathing machine, her sitting up in there and one of the nursing assistants braiding her hair and, and, you know, just talking to her. And she was just so sweet. And about a year, maybe a year, two years after that, after she was discharged, I was at Target and this man, I was looking at something and this man kept looking at me. And I was, you know, kind of, I saw him out of the corner of my eye, but I kind of ignored him, went on my business. And then, then he was like, are you Daniel? And I was like, yeah, I'm Daniel. And he shook my hand and he said, I just wanted to shake your hand because you were part of the team that saved my daughter's life. And that kind of experience is just so fulfilling and so amazing to have. And there's no other feeling in the world. So that 
definitely to be appreciated for something that happened two years ago or whatever. You made a different, it's, it's just a normal day at work for me, but we changed that man's life. We changed that family's life because we were able to prevent his daughter from dying. So those types of stories really is what makes working in uh, healthcare so rewarding and definitely. So that was the one probably most memorable patient that I had. And I would say for me, I've had a lot of memorable like cases in terms of like really cool pathology, but the one that Mm -hmm. sticks out in my mind, which is a slightly sadder story, I was an intern and we had a patient come into our general medicine ward with essentially kind of a weird pneumonia. You know, she had been having bouts of pneumonia for months and months and they had done bronchoscopies, which is a procedure where they go actually down into the lung and take samples. They thought she had a fungal infection at some point, and she was just failing all these different antibiotics and therapies, and no one knew why. Well, some of those biopsies and and brushings that they took from that bronchoscopy came back that she had this big osteosarcoma, a a cancer about the size of of a baseball in her chest. And it turns out that she had had radiation as a child from a a different type of cancer to her chest. And that is kind of what caused this osteosarcoma. And the point of the story that makes it memorable for me was that that was the first time I ever had to give bad news to a patient and tell her that she had cancer again after she had Mm. been through months and months of essentially misdiagnoses. And I think what was most memorable was her response because you expect, like they always teach you in med school, they're going to cry. You need to give silent time to, for them to process. And she goes, oh, well, at least I have a diagnosis. And like, I know that I'm going to fight this just like I did when I was a child. And she was like, gung ho, like I'm ready to start chemo. Like, it, And I was like, wow, like you're so inspiring to me. Like I don't, wow. I wouldn't probably feel that way if I was just told I had cancer. I know I wouldn't. Um, yeah. And so she, she has since actually passed away, unfortunately. But yeah, that was, that always stuck out in my mind as a great learning experience for me on, on how to really impact a patient with your words attitude i feel like is you can correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like a patient's outlook and attitude is sometimes as important if not more important than the medicine and you know the actual physical things that they're that are being done the mind definitely has power to heal one one story that i have obviously i'm not uh, a medical person for my job but I was listening to uh, a really interesting podcast episode. It's called Unexplainable. They had an episode about the nose and I'm just, I'm naturally just interested in medical stuff anyway. Like I enjoy medical shows and I I look at and consume lots of Mm -hmm. what I think people would consider gross things, but they're medical things. But anyway, for this particular episode, they talked about this lady and they opened the episode up basically saying, hey, we don't, we still don't really know how smell works. We still don't really know how the nose works, just that it does. And they were comparing experiences that dogs have and how incredible their sense of smell is, particularly compared to human beings, but just um, the amazing depth that they can, they can smell, which we also don't understand, but we do at least know that they can identify different types of diseases and things and that diseases actually have smells to them. They've determined that really any disease has a a distinct smell. 
at this point is what they said in the podcast. They said any any known disease has its own unique identification of smell. And the story is this lady who was training these types of dogs to specifically, um, what's the word? There's a signal or basically when they find something to notate that they found it. Um, when they hit on it. Yeah, exactly. And so she had been training them since the early 2000s. I think it had been several years that she had been doing it. And one day, one of the dogs that she was training kept nudging her around her chest, and she didn't know why, and he kept on doing it again and again and again. And so she finally thought, you know, maybe he's trying to tell me something. So she went to her doctor and found out that she had uh, a cancerous tumor. I think it was in her breast. That was so deep-seated, it would have never been caught, like, on a scan or anything like that. And because she was able to catch it so early, I think she survived it, and they were able to remove it. But they were like, this is extraordinarily deep-seated to the point where you wouldn't have known for maybe until it was too late. That's crazy. Isn't it? I will say that the, when you start talking about sense of smell and diagnoses, Daniel, there's two that I think of, DKA mm-hmm. and a GI bleed. <laughs> Those are the two mm-hmm. scents that probably Absolutely. are the most pungent. <laughs> oh, gosh. They are. <laughs> well, I love that you both know what that is <laughs> or have experienced so, yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you guys spending uh, some time with me. It's it's been great. Yeah. yeah I love getting to, sure. to hear more about Can I experience. ask one final question yeah. of both of y'all? Sure. Yeah. I want us to all go around and say your favorite medical TV show because Will brought it up. <laughs> hmm. uh, real or fake? Any. I guess any category. I always loved House. Mm-hmm. House is a great one. That's yeah. You know what? This one's a new one, and I bet you guys haven't watched it. And I got really into it, and I really, really like it because of the, in my opinion, from what I can see, the realism of it and the story of it. It's called Transplant. It's a show from Canada, and it Mm. just had its first season. And, I mean, I was really, really into it. And they're in the middle of filming. I think they had a delay in filming for season two, obviously. But it is really, really good. You can find a place to watch it. I don't know all the streaming services it might be on. The story is great. And like I said, from what I've seen in other medical shows, it seems to be accurate. Actually, not just the medicine, but like the the daily day-to-day that a, mm-hmm. a attending or resident will experience. Super. I would recommend. say I love... I love House Daniel, but I got to go with Scrubs. Scrubs, mm. the OG. Mm. That's my absolute favorite. Yeah. You know, another really good like medical comedy is Nurse Jackie that gets under. Oh, yeah. I, um, I have that in my queue to watch. Yeah, it's really funny. Well, thank you for that question. Again, thank you guys for joining me. Maybe we can have you back again. Much for inviting us. Yeah. Would love to, yeah. Cool. Well, where can people find you guys if you if you'd like to be found online or otherwise? I'm on Instagram. My handle is PacMashMD. P A C K M A S H M D. And I can be found on LinkedIn if you want my professional account. <laughs> well, thank you guys once again, and thank you listeners for tuning back in and uh, this episode with us. Have a great day. <laughs>